Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Allison Maycor about her book, Making the Best Years of Our Lives, the Hollywood classic that inspired a nation. The book was published in 2022 by University of Texas Press. A film still revered and watched in the present, The Best Years of Our Lives, released in 1946, presented the stories of three returning World War II servicemen and the family and friends in their lives. With a great sense of realism and accuracy, the movie deservedly won many awards. In our talk, Allison discusses her overall process and research for the book. We also talk about some of the controversies that later appeared after its release. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Allison Maycor. Hi, Allison. Hi, Joel. How are you? Very good. Uh, I'm speaking with Allison Maycor, who is the author of the book, Making the Best Years of Our Lives, the Hollywood Classic That Inspired a Nation, published University of Texas Press in this year. This is not your first book for them, and it's not even your first book, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, As we go, we're obviously going to be talking about the film a lot. One of the things I like about books that are based on specific films is they become an excuse to revisit the film, or if not even revisit, watch it for the first time. And... We'll talk about it as we go, but it's been a while since I've seen Best Years of Our Lives, but what was so great is because of your book, I also went out and found the uh, military films, all of the ones that, uh, the two that are with, with um, uh, the two that included uh, uh, Harold Russell, or the one that includes Harold Russell, Diary of a, of a Sergeant, and also the one he talks about in Diary of a Sergeant, which is Meet McGonagall, and then the two William Wyler um, news um, 
documentaries are all available on YouTube. So yeah. <laughs> Library of Congress and National Archives has them all. So it's great that I was able to do that. And those are the kind of things that, like I say, getting that extra background information is so nice. And I also joke that this this movie needs a Criterion edition. I don't know why they haven't done one on this one. Um, you're not alone in thinking that. And um, yeah, I don't, I, someone told me that they're they're looking at the book i don't know i hope that bodes well for the movie we'll see yeah because we could do the it would only take about 15 minutes to put together the supplements i mean you know those newsreels are all easily not newsreels those other ones and there's so much background that comes through in your book about the making of that could be a part of a of a Criterion, and given that they're doing 4K releases now, maybe they'll look at this one as they've shown it on Criterion Channel. But yeah, uh, yeah. So I, and, I, we can only hope, right? Yeah, um, I don't know who owns the rights to it, but hopefully uh, it'll appear at some point. Anyway, let's get going. But before we get into the book itself, uh, you live in Austin. You've been there for quite a while. Although, as you I told have. me before we started recording, you're actually from New Jersey originally. Um, you taught in Austin, but now you are a writer in Austin, although educational. So let's talk about your background a little bit. Obviously, you teach film or taught. I don't know if you're still doing any teaching at all. You know, I went back into the classroom for the first time last fall. Um, so just let that settle in, you know, on the heels of the Omicron or no, I think it was Delta variant at that time. Um, they had reached out, the University of Texas reached out in last May, May of 2021, and they needed, you know, hey, would you want to teach a contemporary horror class? And I said, that sounds fun, but only if I can do it in person. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, and, and we did. Uh, we were all masked up. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but yes, I trained um, to become a full-time professor, um, you know, got my master's and my PhD. The same month that I was starting my PhD at the University of Texas, um, I got an offer to be a freelance film critic for the Austin Chronicle um, here in town, which is um, the Independent Weekly. Um, and I thought, gosh, can I do both of those? I don't know. Grad school's, you know, a lot of work, but I did, and I am so grateful because I think that that really sort of set me on a path, not the easy path, <laughs> but a path that's worked for me, where for a long time I taught part-time and, and was a freelance writer part-time, um, and you know, being an adjunct is, is difficult. It, it got only got harder. Um, <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm sure some of the listeners understand. And as much as I love teaching, um, I just knew that I maybe needed to find a different path. This was my son was in kindergarten. And, you know, it just I was driving around a lot to teach at different campuses. So I stepped away from teaching, which is very difficult. But I was lucky to be able to build something of a ghostwriting career, um, developmental editor, ghostwriting, um, along with my other freelance writing. Um, and, you know, was continuing to write books at the same time, my own books. So, um, you know, I feel grateful that I can make it work for the most part, <laughs> not always. <laughs> But um, yeah, and I'm, of course, you know, super grateful. I've been with the University of Texas Press. This is my third book for them. And uh, they've been supportive. And 
and that's great. So this is, as you say, your third book for them. Did you write anything for any book uh, length work for it before these three books? I mean, I did my uh, dissertation, you know, to get my PhD, and that was actually on fan communities. Um, I was, I've always been fascinated in with audiences and reception and, um, you know, being a film critic, I got to go to a lot of cushy press screenings, but also a lot of, you know, they only screen comedies, or at least they did in the 90s and early 2000s, um, you know, with audiences. So I would go on those, you know, radio program, Tuesday night, come see a new movie, sneak preview thing. And I was just fascinated with the way people reacted to movies, still am. Um, so my dissertation was on fan communities over time and technology. And I looked at 4K studies, um, the films of William Castle um, and um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Twin Peaks and Mystery Science Theater 3000, which I was a huge fan of that. So yes, I see it. I spotted it right away, Joel. Yeah, I'm we're sorry. We're, we're, this is an audio medium, but I've got a Mystery Science Theater 3000 pen cup, or actually it's a mug, but I use it as a pen cup. Yeah. I don't, so that, I don't have one of my t-shirts on today, though. <laughs> I don't have my t-shirt, but you can't see it. But to my left is um, a framed print of Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. I got that poster from something and framed it and yeah. Well, okay. So obviously I was wondering about your dissertation. It was clearly, you were definitely, that's something you were qualified to write about, especially since I can imagine, I don't know if you've written anything during the pandemic about possible things of how things may be changing with during that long period of time when the movie theaters weren't open. And now that they're open, it just doesn't seem like we're getting the same quantity of films. I mean, for especially for the summer. It just seems yeah. that certain movies are staying forever and nothing new is behind them. I do think that's part of, you know, trying to milk, for instance, Top Gun Maverick, you know, get get that to deliver as much as it's going to deliver. Um, but also, yeah, it's probably a quantity issue. I, I went back in the theater. I took my now 14-year-old to see um, Top Gun Maverick. My second book was actually about Warren Skirin, who is... Hollywood screenwriter and was script doctor and was the last uh, writer on the original Top Gun. And so that was really fun to go see that and kind of remember reading through Warren's notes and the many versions of the script he wrote. Um, but yeah, the, the, going back into the theater, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I will say I have gotten a little spoiled being in my home. Um, and I'm one of those people who loves, you know, everybody be quiet. I am very much that person. And um, so that kind of stuff, like, how are people going to be? Are they going to remember how to behave in the movie theater? Yeah, I, I noticed your previous book on Scarin, and he was one of those names that would appear on a screen a lot and in movies. And and I, the one that I remember the most where I saw his name was the first, the 1989 Batman, or yeah. yeah, 89 Batman, which of course Sam Hamm is listed as the story writer and then the main screenplay writer, but Scarin is, is listed, so obviously he must have had quite a bit to do with it, otherwise his name wouldn't be there, given the Writers Guild. Um, so 
I'll definitely have to check that book out because it just sounds that those kind of books are interesting to hear about people who aren't always known as well. Yeah, I, I'm drawn to those subjects. And I will just sort of say that, you know, the book is also about screenplay credit arbitration. And um, so the names that you see on the screen aren't always the ones who had the most input, but sometimes it's political, sometimes it's otherwise. And I think Scarin's experience as a screenwriter um, bore that out. And since, you know, when I was teaching, I had a lot of production students come through my film history classes. And I would always say to them, you're going to be doing this kind of work if you're lucky. You know, if you start to have a career, you're going to be doing a lot of polishing scripts for other people. Um, and I felt like people weren't really being upfront about that and talking about how that's such a part of the industry. Uh, people like John Sayles do, and I really admire that, you know, where he's honest about, and he, and he says, you know, I do this work in part because I like it, but I also, it helps me make my own films. And I think the more transparency we can have on, in that regard is good. Yeah, I was thinking, I just in, recently interviewed an author about a book about Michael Cimino. Oh, and yes, there was somebody who was a screen credit grabber. He would do everything he could to get screen credits. And there's a lot in the book that talks about some of the issues with uh, arbitration and, and credits. So anyway, let's get into this book because that's yeah. why we're really here. Um, <laughs> Best Years of Our Lives came out in 1946. The concept that that movie came out barely a year after the war ended just and really wasn't really even being worked on until the war was yeah. over. Yeah. Uh, it just shows how fast you can get a movie done in if everything falls into place perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Samuel Goldwyn was the producer, and um, that becomes issues. <laughs> and William Wyler is the director, and Robert Sherwood is the writer. Yes. But it was ba based on a book, but the book was sort of suggested to be written because Samuel Goldwyn's wife found an article about returning servicemen. Yeah, and, in Time Magazine. Right. And that's how the whole idea started. And it's just unbelievable how a movie this good could be put together so quickly given... And especially with things like that Sherwood wanted the book, you know, they had all agreed they were going to do the movie in the exact script with very few, if any, changes. And so where did, uh, talk a little bit about that initial discussion that got to the point where the, where the film was planned out. Well, it did start with Francis Goldwyn um, reading this magazine article. And, you know, one of the first things I did my research, um, I had taught the film for many years, so I knew a lot about the film, but, you know, really doing a deep dive into the research, I, before I even got into the archives, I found the article, and it's a great article, and it really does capture the kind of tension and awkwardness of veterans coming home and being scared, and um, so I can see what she was drawn to by that. You know, Francis and Sam had a son who was, I believe, going into the army at that point. So she was, you know, obviously on the lookout for things. Um, and Goldwyn was a little resistant, but he went ahead and, you know, got, got the rights and did all of that. And because he had, you know, he started his, his company, um, 
with this idea of setting himself apart as an independent producer, you know, it was about prestige for him. And so basing a movie on this, you know, source material that had prestige was was sort of the typical way of, of how he worked. So um, he went out and commissioned McKinley Cantor, who had written before about the war, about the Civil War, um, to write a, a novel. And Cantor, you know, had experience during World War II as well. And he wrote this novel um, and brought it to Goldwyn. And it, like one of the issues about it, I think, that made it um, a challenge to adapt is that it was written in blank verse. Um, other issues were, it has a, a really sort of brittle tone to it, um, even though there's a lot of great stuff in there. And, and when I talk about it, I'm mindful of, you know, some people have said to me, like, it's a great book. How can you say that? And I'm, I'm thinking about it as, you know, something that's going to be brought to the screen and some of the issues that were probably at stake for Goldwyn. Um, so he had Cantor do an outline, I think even a, maybe a treatment, and then he brought in Sherwood, but bringing Sherwood in took a lot of, uh, basically took the summer of 1945 to convince him. And reading, you know, the memos and the telegrams back and forth, I think what really brought Sherwood aboard, a, a he, one, he had told Goldwyn he wanted to work on escapist films which this was not going to be. And two, um, he worried that the topic would be out of date by the time the film hit theaters. And William Wyler, who had come back from the war and old, owed Goldwyn one more film under his current contract, he was the one, I think, who helped to convince Sherwood um, because he himself had been injured during the war. And he said, I think this could really do a lot for people you know, readjusting here and coming home. And I think that went a long way in convincing Sherwood. Yeah, in watching the film and right from the beginning, uh, I'm struck by how well, without a lot, huge amount of, I mean, most of the dialogue is pretty straightforward at mm -hmm. the beginning, but there's a lot of visuals that definitely point to the situation, you know, you see it going in pretty fast where things are likely to go. And I'm thinking just in the initial scene where the one aircraft person wants to move stuff out of the way mm -hmm. and two other soldiers help him, but um, the Homer, uh, Parrish. Homer Parrish character yeah, doesn't do anything. Yeah. And you don't know why at the time. And then suddenly, yeah. not only do you see the hooks, but then so does... Um, um, Dana Andrews' character, Fred, sees the hooks and it goes from there and suddenly the movie, you you know what's going on like within seconds, just where we're going. Yeah. And and so uh, it's just unbelievable how such a, a, a book, I mean, a movie that has a lot of dialogue, obviously, but the visuals just jump out at you right from the very beginning. So... Um, Let's talk more about Homer Parrish, the character who, of course, is played by Harold Russell. It was his only feature film, um, although, as we talked about before we started uh, or earlier, um, he did appear in one Army film called uh, Diary of a Sergeant, yeah. and it was about the fact that he had lost his hands, and 
it was a real biography in a sense because he talks in the in the docu in the in the little twenty minute film about how he lost them, which of course in the film he loses them part of the war where he really lost them in an accident stateside, and he yes. talks about that. So when did who who was the one who who saw that first and therefore decided that uh, Harold Russell was somebody to consider? Well, that is the question. You know, everybody has their version of that. Uh, Goldwyn claims credit for seeing it. Um, I write in the book, I mean, I acknowledge the different versions, but as I say in the book, I think Russell always tended to believe that it was Weiler and Sherwood, you know, in a joint, I think they were attending a bond rally where it was being shown. They had been doing research by visiting different um, veterans hospitals um, not just to maybe to find somebody to play that role, but really to, um, you know, get a sense of what was at stake for um, veterans who were similarly injured. And um, so they saw a diary of a sergeant. And, uh, you know, I think if you watch the film and you see Harold Russell, like I write in the book that he, you know, was a poster boy really for um, the military in terms of, you know, how to rehab um, because he had struggled at Walter Reed. There is a very specific ward, Ward 32, where, um, you know, people with those kinds of disabilities or those kinds of injuries would rehab together. And um, it was kind of, you know, Russell's account of being there is, is both you know, it's very, it's grimly humorous. And um, he struggled as would, I think anybody, uh, but it was seeing this training film called Meet McGonagall about a World War I veteran who had similar injuries. Um, and seeing that I think gave him hope. And then Charles McGonagall came and visited Walter Reed and, and you know, that really helped Russell as well. Um, and I did want to say, you know, yes, Harold Russell did not, this was his first Hollywood feature. Um, he made appearances much later on, I think in Inside Moves and maybe an episode of China Beach. Um, so I just wanted to point that out, that he had these appearances, but for all you know, intents and purposes, he did not pursue a movie career post Best Years. Of course, the other interesting thing about the, the, the training film or the documentary was he didn't actually speak in it. it was, there was a narrator, but it wasn't him. So yes. even though he may have been able to visually show his charisma, I guess, or his ability to, to stand out, they still took a chance because he needed to be able to, you know, act as well. Uh, oral. I mean, he had to be able to talk the talk, so to speak. Right. And he had such a, you know, he was from, um, he was mainly raised in Massachusetts and he had that accent and in fact I write about the one scene where you know he's supposed to say car and Weiler keeps kind of working with him on it over and over finally he's like just say automobile because you know? <laughs> he kept on saying car exactly with the Boston accent so how did the rest of the cast come together obviously like we've already said this went fast um so once they had the the source material and then the the screenplay, uh, the casting went pretty quickly. Um, some of them were people that were under contract, but um, let's talk a, a little bit about Myrna Loy and Frederick March, given the fact that they are top billed. 
Yeah, um, although Myrna Loy in her contract it gets billing above him, if I remember correctly. Um, she was reluctant. She had never worked with Weiler. She had heard, you know, he could be a stickler for doing lots of takes. Um, Samuel Goldwyn in France and his wife had her over. Um, she was newly married, I think for the third time. They had her over to kind of convince her to do the part. Um, uh, I think they had considered Olivia de Havilland at one point. Um, with Frederick March, you know, they had also talked to Fred McMurray, which, you know, is always sort of mind blowing to me to think about Frederick McMurray. Um, see, Double Indemnity had come out, what was that, 44 maybe? 45? Yeah. So, and, and he had, uh, supposedly said, you know, I'm not going to play a third banana. Uh, so he turned it down. Um, but Frederick March said yes. And um, he, before production even started, he and Weiler exchanged an interesting series of um, telegrams. And Weiler was, you know, saying to him, you know, we're both around the same age. I know, you know, it's hard to lose weight, but you do have to look hardened for this role, you know, so please, you know, he was very insistent about that, even wrote it again in a PS saying, you know, please slim down. So, you know, more, what did he say? Something like more canine rations than um, rations than uh, Club 21 something or the 21 Club rather. So those, yeah, those two came together. They were probably the last. I mean, because Teresa Wright was under contract with Goldwyn. So was Dana Andrews. Um, uh, you know, they got Harold Russell. They sort of courted him by sending um, one of Goldwyn executive in uh, the fall of 45. Um, but he, I think he was signed his contract in, in probably by November, December of that year and then came out in January. Um, who am I forgetting? Let's see. Virginia Mayo, well, she was also under contract, relatively new contract with Goldwyn, known for comedies. Um, so she always joked, you know, that she won William Wyler, his, you know, best director, Oscar, because no one expected Wyler, to, anybody to be able to direct Mayo and, you know, uh, uh, drama although i would call this maybe a dramedy because there's definitely comic comic moments in this yeah, there are a few times that there are lines that you think did they really say you know it's just know. one it's it's that i don't i can't even think of it the sarcasm or snide or you know there were there are the occasional lines here and there that uh it is surprising that there is some humor in that you know without given the subject uh, and everything. And then, of course, uh, as you say, a lot of these folk, and then, of course, the other new face besides Harold Russell was Kathy O'Donnell. Right, Kathy O'Donnell. And, um, you know, she was probably the newest one, I mean, of, of actors. You right. Know, well, in the, in the credits, she's listed as introducing Kathy O'Donnell. Right. Right. And yeah, Goldwyn really kind of cultivated her and was very upset when she ended up marrying William Wyler's brother. Um, and they were married and, and she she actually, it was funny, I got a note from one of the Wyler kids um, recently and they referred to her as, you know, their aunt, which of course she was, but it took me back. You know, you get so into thinking about these people as just actors 
sometimes you can forget that they have these familial connections and then of course they some of the extra, the 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 other actors there were some interesting choices probably the most interesting was casting Hoagie Carmichael mm -hmm. to be Harold's uh, uncle or Homer's mm -hmm. uncle the character um so you can tell right from the beginning because they don't waste a lot of time they get him behind the <laughs> piano pretty fast exactly. and so and off screen, he gave Harold Russell piano lessons to help him for that um, that great moment, you know, right. where he just chopsticks. Yeah. So at this point, they knew, because like we say, the script, once it was done, it was pretty much done, although they did make changes and Sherwood did work a little bit on making changes. But supposedly, based on what we know, it was made pretty close to what the original screenplay was. So they obviously knew going in that this was going to be a movie that could be have controversy to it or that was going to look at the war slightly different than a lot of the other films that had been coming out during the war itself. You know, I don't think that was as top of mind um, because I think it was such a part of, of who they were. You know, Sherwood had worked um, in the administration for FDR. He'd been a speechwriter during the war. Uh, Weiler was you know, liberal in his politics. And I, 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 there wasn't a lot of, I didn't find a lot of correspondence about that. That's not to say they didn't talk about that. Um, I think, you know, top of mind going into this project was the worry, will it be out of date? We don't think so, we're gonna go with that. Then they were also very worried about the length. You know, is this too long? And I, found this article written, I don't know, a year or two before, um, you know, our, something about how, how long are movies too long, which I just think is amazing that that, you know, was being talked about then. And of course, we're still talking about that. It's interesting because I, when I was watching it, I, when I watched it the other day, just to refresh my memory, I saw right away that the movie splits into, th into three parts so easily. The first hour literally is starts when they from the beginning of the film till after al wakes up or until after fred wakes up and leaves so mm -hmm. the and finally goes back to his wife so at the beginning so that that's the first hour of the film and it goes by so quickly because yeah. you know even though there's not there's not a lot of slowness it just moves and then moves on and moves on and there's always good points in the film that keeps your interest up and then of course in this we as we go on like when Teresa Wright and Dana Andrews character start to become involved so that all in fact that was the other part I mean the only thing I would say watching the film was I can't tell how long the film takes in real time uh, we obviously know the first oh, hour takes one night and then the mm -hmm. rest of it except for the flying part at the beginning, but the rest of it's hard to tell for sure how long the time period is. Uh, obviously, weeks and months do pass by, but it, it's just interesting the way that that initial part goes so fast. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, that reading through the responses from the um, first uh, preview screenings was really fascinating. Um, because I think Goldwyn and Weiler in particular were looking for that, is it too long? And and that was not what they were getting back in the responses. You know, it was more about 
um, the relationships and the characters and, you know, who they wanted to see more of on screen, that kind of thing. So right from the beginning, and this is what I was talking about a little bit earlier about the, the visual aspect or how quickly we discover information about the characters, especially the three men. Uh, at the very beginning, we meet this captain who at outside looks like he's got it all together and he knows what he wants, he knows where he's going. And then he meets Al and once again, these people, those two seem to act show like they've got it all together. Then they come, we meet Harold who, uh, or, excuse me, Homer who has no hands and that changes everything. But very quickly, as we, once they get home, things, you, you very fast know, none of these men are really back together to where they were before the war. One physical, but the other two, the, the mental aspects of it come through very fast. Yeah, and and you know that, and that is on the minds of the other characters as well. And one of the first things Millie says to um, Al after you know their embrace, that great scene where they're you know at opposite ends of the hallway, which was inspired by an event in Weiler's life with his wife Tally. Um, she says, "Are you all right?" Al, you know, like, are you really all right? And then that's echoed in Virginia Mayo as uh, Marie saying to Fred, you know, in your mind, what did she say? In your head, I think. Are you all right in your head? So I like the way that the movie puts that out there from multiple perspectives. It's not just these three men, you know, it's also, um, the women in their lives and I that was a very real thing now that was in the literature of the time you know this focus on how to help your husband boyfriend brother you know readjust basically right and that's one of the things about we we have this tendency nowadays partly because it's been so long ago and very few of us know anybody who can who is still alive, who fought in World War II. I mean, it, I mean, my father did, but even though, I mean, he's been gone for many years, but he never obviously said anything about it, not one word. Really? And not that we'd ever had the reason to discuss it, but it wasn't the kind of thing you talked about. And you hear the story, you hear it now, but it was happening in World War II. I mean, at the time, some of the films that we've seen more recently get into that more. I mean, even going to things like uh, Saving Private Ryan and some of these other films where these men went through something that has largely been lost over the re more recent years where we talk about the greatest generation and all that as if, and yet in any war, and we know that from prior wars, that what they went through was, no matter what they did, was just so... It just affected them, but they didn't always show it. Yeah, and I think obviously, you know, you could talk about generational um, differences and, and, you know, how far we've come in being able to talk publicly about mental health. Um, you know, one of my very first classes I ever taught, I also taught at a community college and I had a Gulf War vet, I had a Vietnam vet. Um, and you know, both were struggling. And I guess when I started to think about this project, I just thought, you know, this was in around 2017, 2018. And I just, 
Now, obviously PTSD, it's something we're talking about more. It's something we need to keep talking about. And that was one of the inspirations behind writing the book was, I think this film still has a lot to offer. Um, what I loved was when Turner Classic Movies played at last Veterans Day and they had a retired army major, um, Jeremy Haynes, I think if I'm getting his name right, who talked about, you know, having been injured in Afghanistan and seeing this movie and, and how, it could, how it helped him. I mean, I think that's the real testament to the power of this movie um, is, is, is that it retains that sort of um, relatability even more than 75 years later. It's, and in fact, you have a whole section right early on in which you discuss how uh, what we would now call PTSD and going all the way back. I mean, you know, we in the literature, there is so much information about prior wars. It's called different things, but uh, you go back into that because we do have actual studies of how soldiers who came back and what they went through and uh, going all the way back to the Civil War, maybe even before, but the Civil War and World War One, and and so on about what happened to them and uh, mentally more so even than physically. Yeah, that part I knew from the beginning I was going to have to have in there sort of this, if you will, a history of PTSD. Um, and the way I write, you know, is narrative nonfiction. So I was like, well, how do I incorporate this. Um, I can't just do this info dump, you know, with all of this. And as I continued to research and go into the archives, I realized, you know, the chronology of Harold Russell's um, injury, which happened in 1944, and then William Wyler's injury, which happened in spring of 1945, uh, rather. And so I kind of tried to use their stories as a way into that history. And what was fascinating to me is really how quickly the military, like how chaotic for one, the, the, how chaotic the, the modes of treatment were, you know, what should we do? What's the best strategy here for treating um, soldiers with these, this war trauma, which is the term that sort of I come to for that period. Um, and then, you know, going from chemical treatments to talk therapy, you know, within the span of less than a year. I mean, that was pretty fascinating to me, just um, how changeable it was at that time. Yeah, and that's that's where one of the other reasons I think this film is as timely now as it's ever been is because we're back in that kind of situation where people have come back and from war and we don't always know what's underlying, what's going on, and what they experienced and how it affected them. And we even get that somewhat because there's, you know, some of the talking about how uh, men particularly would say that they were being, I don't know what word I want to use, like a contemporary word would be wimpy because mm -hmm. they can't, couldn't get over it, that kind of thing. And yet, uh, as we see in the, in the film, the people who didn't fight, especially the bankers and, and and that group of people where you have to really ask yourself, uh, how do you know, they don't understand it because they didn't experience it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, you know, another film of the time um, that I write about just to give context for what other films are doing um, till the end of time, where one of the characters, I think, says to his mother, 
um, basically, you know, mom, you know, I've gone through so much and she's like, let's not talk about that now. And, and it, it is that sense, I think, for some people, that sense of frustration, like, no, no, I'd actually like to, that would be helpful. Not always, as you point out with your father and, you know, uh, other, it's a personality thing, I think, really, you can't be, you can't generalize, but um, we're certainly a generation now, I think, where we are doing it more, encouraging it more, and seeing the benefits of that. And then, of course, you also mention some of the films that came out more recently, both after Vietnam and now we're seeing after the Gulf and uh, War and the first Gulf War and then in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in fact, Iraq and Afghanistan, it seems like filmmakers did not waste a lot of time. And not that that's a bad thing. It's just Vietnam. It took a little bit of time before we saw much of anything. And really, uh, Gulf War and Afghanistan and we've gotten them quicker but they've been very quick to hit the issues related to how war affects people Mm -hmm. well and you know I write about that in the book in the intro just that I really do think even if people like Catherine Bigelow you know who did the Hurt Locker don't cite this film specifically as having been an influence I mean I think it helps that this film and others around that time, but this film, because it was such a big deal, big in scope, big in at the box office, it had stars, um, that it helped to put that out there, you know, dealing with war trauma and and not, not coming to um, easy conclusions about it, I think. So the book also, you spend a lot, obviously, a good portion, I'm not sure I didn't measure exact time period, you know, length part, obviously the filming um, and many of the issues between Goldwyn and Weiler. Mm-hmm. Um, Goldwyn being the money man and but also and Weiler being the perfectionist and the two of them never really got along well during this entire process, although obviously the film was made and did very well right from the beginning as you mentioned in the book the first previews were unbelievable the mm-hmm. focus the initial preview was probably from the reading of it it's probably one of the best previews a movie has ever had and uh so but let's talk that a little bit because it's that that part of it too is the making of the film um goldwyn and and weiler uneasy pairing or did in the end uh, did it help the movie because it pushed them both to do their best? I would say both. I mean, it was an uneasy pairing. They had been working together since the thirties and, um, you know, they, they had issues and this was Weiler's last film. He had signed up with Frank Capra and, um, Sam Briskin and George Stevens to start Liberty, right? Their own mm-hmm. independent film company. And that was, Weiler and Capra went into production the same day on their films. Weiler making Best Years for Goldwyn, Capra making It's a Wonderful Life for Liberty. Um, And I do think that there, you know, I even quote 
Weiler's wife, Tally, who said, you know, she thought that there was there was some benefit to the friction between Goldwyn and Weiler, some kind of creative benefit that comes from, you know, having to really hash out choices, defend choices and have limitations put on you to some extent. Um, you know, then it kind of took a turn after the film came out, you know, Goldwyn was so I mean, he was Goldwyn and he, you know, didn't always give credit verbally to Weiler. In fact, there's an interview that came out years later where the interviewer says to Goldwyn, now when Weiler made, you know, such and such, or yeah, made his film, whatever, and Goldwyn stopped him and he said, that is my film. Weiler made that for me, you know, so it's very clear how the hierarchy worked for Goldwyn. Um, and Weiler wrote to, you know, his good friend, playwright Lillian Hellman saying, you know, I thought my hard time in the war would have maybe cured me of this, these issues with Goldwyn, which would manifest as headaches and teeth grinding and stomach issues. He's like, but I've got Goldwynitis again, you know, going into best years. And it was just that kind of clashing over things. Goldwyn was definitely, you know, protecting the Sherwood script. Um, and, and Weiler wasn't fighting him too much on that, but there were times where Weiler was saying, you know, we need more here. And so there was a little bit of that back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, but what Goldwyn was also making The Secret Life of Walter Mitty um, with Danny Kaye and Virginia Mayo. She was having to go between the two productions. Um, so that kind of took him away a little bit, I'd say, from the middle part to the end of the production, which kind of gave people a breather on the set um, from Goldwyn showing up. And of course, um, the, the dailies were showing that what they were doing was spectacular. I mean, yes, it's, it, yeah. you, they always talk about that with, with some movies. No one knows for sure until it's done. And I'm sure that was still the case here. But of course, part of this also, and this is where I wanted to lead into discussing the release and the aftermath of, and that's dealing with the censors and Joseph Breen at the beginning, where right from the, he saw, he had the screenplay for, obviously this was just part of the process. You had to give the, uh, the board the screenplay and then they come back with their points and then you worry when it's time to release the film. Uh, what kind of issues did Breen bring up? And the ones that I was a little surprised about was that he didn't seem to complain about some of the underlying contextual things such as the the, the uh, issue in the, in the in the soda fountain where uh, with the the one man who uh, becomes a major issue yeah um, that surprised me too um, you know I, I as a film historian I knew that sex and alcohol were two big things with the production code administration but to really see that play out in the back and forth you know in the letters and the memos was was interesting i was also surprised that there was no discussion that i saw no memos that i saw about um harold russell's hooks you know no no resistance to that or or limitations to that um, but it was the presentation of marriage, you know, how marriage was presented. Let's be, let's keep this a sacred bond. Um, and, and this is 
pretty much a quote, no lustful kissing. That was a biggie. Um, he lost on that one. That's for sure. There's a couple of scenes. <laughs> well, and, you know, the, the, the necklines of the right. gowns for Teresa Wright and Virginia Mayo in the nightclub scene, that was an issue. Uh, one of my favorites, what it said on the door of the powder room in the nightclub scene, in the script, it just said ladies. And Breen said it should say ladies lounge. And I think it was Pat Dugan, one of Goldwyn's execs, who was like, you're missing the joke. You know, the joke that Virginia Mayo makes is, you know, I just go right in, you know, I'm no lady. Uh, so there's, you know, always interesting things that make you shake your head. Um, and plus the, 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 the one scene that I still can't get over is the infamous or famous uh, breakfast in bed scene. I mean, that <laughs> yeah. That 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 few minutes and it's just an unbelievable scene as far as uh, what it portrayed. Yeah, the passion that comes through, you know, in this black and white movie, I think is pretty. I mean, when I would show this to my students, they're like, "Aren't they talking about sex?" I'm like, "Pretty much, yeah." And and you know, Green was saying there need to be two beds in that bedroom, and there weren't. They were able to get one bed. Um, which I think is a testament to, you know, the power that Goldwyn and Weiler had at this time in the industry that they were able to, you know, um, but yeah, the film, when it came out, I mean, pretty, pretty quickly, it became caught up in, um, you know, the Hollywood Un-American, yeah, the Un-American Activities Committee. Yeah, it actually went through, initial release was unbelievable everybody loved it it made tons of money Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. of course film came out late 46 so 47 48 house on american activities committee doesn't really start really going until later in the fall of 47 right and then continues on Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately as we say it got caught up for no particularly good reason that i could see well, there were rumblings about it. I mean, as much as there was this avalanche of, you know, praise and money coming in, um, there were rumblings in some reviews in conservative um, publications about the film, um, you know, criticizing like, oh, you can you can see Sherwood grandstanding in that scene. You know, it's liberal, all that liberal crap he would write for FDR, you know, that kind of thing started popping up. Um, and Weiler, you know, was very involved in the committee, one of the founders of the Committee for the First Amendment and gathering Hollywood um, people to kind of go and um, fight, you know, the hearings and stand up for what, you know, the people and the content being challenged. And I write about that in the, one of the later chapters. Um, and it's interesting that scene that it's a reasonably that whole scene especially the way it starts first with the man talks to Harold and sees his hooks and things and starts talking about it and then little by little he starts talking about um we shouldn't have been there we shouldn't they're getting us into another war and it's just that has a very <laughs> I'm sorry to say it a very 21st century sound to it especially it really where yeah. he talks about being you know the America first concept which like we know, even before World War II, it's been around for a long, long time. And unfortunately, it happens right after World War II as well and um, <clears throat> continues on for that matter. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I was writing that chapter in, I guess in two, yeah, in the election year in 2020, I was, so there was like dueling tensions that I was feeling as I wrote it, you know, just the political climate, this, this pandemic that, you know, was gaining momentum and people were frantic about. So I was telling a writer friend, I'm like, I just, there are so many parallels to this, you know, it's so tense. And he basically said, use that tension. And I tried to do that, you know, and funnel it into that chapter. Yeah. And this, of course, at the, they, they'd have no way of knowing that <laughs> how prophetic it might be again. But obviously uh, at the time, like we say, uh, there was that, especially even though this is it postdates this, uh, things got worse in '49 once the communists take over China. Yeah, it just gets even worse because then the blame starts to go on and on about well, the Cold War by itself, which by '46 or when this was being finished, the film was already starting. It wasn't to where it was going to be, but we knew not pretty much by then that there was going to. Not things with Russia was not going to necessarily be very good, right? Right, and and you know that even they changed the headline. I'm forgetting the original headline, but it was had more of an international flavor in the the headline of the newspaper that that gentleman is reading, and then you know be, says senators warn of a new war, um, so they made it more pointed at that point um, in the you know production. Um, and that was like, I guess at that point when they were shooting that particular scene, I believe it was either June or July of 46, that one. It was interesting to me because I, I have studied post-World War II Cold War. And one of the things that comes out of World War II is that we tend to look back and think how happy everybody was that the war was over. Mm-hmm. And that does happen with VE Day when Germany um, surrenders. But... By the time of Japan's surrender, the atomic bombs had been dropped, and that suddenly adds to the overall tension. I think uh, the Cold War may not, uh, the Cold War, we obviously had to deal with communism, quote unquote, but then there was also the bomb. Mm -hmm. And you put the two together, and um, there's no question that Americans in particular were worried about what happens now. Yeah, the war is over, but we've got this hanging over us. Yeah, and what I try to point out in the book too is, is you know, as part from the war, it was affecting the economy. You know, it was affecting. There were there were strikes taking place in Hollywood. Um, there was, uh, you know, inflation that was affecting uh, set. To, you know, the the construction materials for sets. I mean, so that was the reality that was coming through. You know, despite the euphoria perhaps over the end of the war and of course europe i mean we know that britain in particular had rationing well into the 50s so anyway i wanted to write about that too and i do a little bit when um weiler and his wife go over to europe for the international release of the film in the summer of 47 you know i try to include some of those things like it was the first time tally weiler had been to europe and, you know, she was seeing things in like the color of the bread, I think, because it was yellow we, because of lack yeah, of meat. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, and it was like, you know, here were there these Americans, you know, who, you know, Willie had gotten a, a special car for the trip, 
that um, was the convertible. And, um, you know, in part, he got that car. Um, so they had some freedom to move around and, and could be where they needed to be. But it, you know, he was also, um, he was deaf in one ear. So he was very aware of, you know, how, what would help him best when he was trying to drive. But yeah, there, I don't even remember, to be honest, if this made it into the final version of the book. Um, because I remember somebody saying like, oh, what's all this stuff with the car in Europe? Why is that important? And I'm like, well, it's important because it kind of gives you some sense of, you know, the haves and the have, have no, not. It, it comes through because you did mention rationing in mm -hmm. pretty good detail that it maybe not maybe it's not as obvious but it's there i mean the idea yeah. that europe for many many years was without of course they were also largely destroyed uh right. where the united states did still have shortages and inflation and stuff but uh they also had a lot of these folks had a lot of money after the war because of how much working they did and all they did was make money because they didn't have time to do anything else and right. nothing to buy and then suddenly the plenty that's what I love about that drugstore scene. It's just so overstuffed, right. you know, the signs and the products and there's just, you know, the film is, is, is rich with that kind of, as you said, the visual communication of the things that were going on in the background. Wanted to talk a little bit about the research aspect of the book, because that's obviously an important subject. How did you run across, I mean, how did you find your source materials? I mean, uh, your research materials, was it a reasonably s s straightforward process or did you find things that you didn't know existed that helped you? Oh, I don't, it, it was, it was a lot of archival work and I live in Austin, Texas and I had to go to Los Angeles. I made four trips of different lengths. Um, I had to request access in the Sam Goldwyn um, collection. So that took about a month to get that. I didn't know going in that it was, you know, a closed archive. So when they said, oh, you'll have to write a letter, I was a little worried, like, oh gosh, you know, will I be able to get in? Um, but within a month I heard back, yes. And so um, I researched at the Herrick Library, which is a wonderful library at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, and then UCLA has some Weiler collections um, and some other collections like the art directors, George Jenkins um, collection, you know, the, the motion picture production code collection. So a lot of that was in Los Angeles. Um, Harold Russell's archive is at Boston University. I did not go there, but I was on the phone with them a few times. You know, he wrote two memoirs. Um, I used them a lot, but I cross-checked a lot of stuff in there, you know, a lot of, because he went on to have kind of a public career as an advocate um, and worked through various presidential administrations, I could check some of that and then I could go back and check some of the bio. It was interesting too, because I saw the bio that was being doctored for Goldwyn before, you know, when they're getting ready to release the movie. And I was already seeing Russell's, you know, biography sort of revised through Goldwyn's office. So that was kind of interesting. And of course, um, Harold Russell lived to almost see, or maybe he was still alive, but was heavily involved in what became the Americans, for Dis Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, which has become a landmark 
uh, law in this country, but he was still involved. He was involved there because he was still alive. Yeah, he had just retired right before it came into law, I believe, but was very much involved, um, you know, if not directly, definitely behind the scenes and all of the legislation he helped to get through before that. Um, and there were some oral histories um, that I got from Myrna Loys from Columbia University, um, some other just sort of background information, how Wallace's oral history is at SMU in Dallas. Um, so I don't know, they were accessible. I had to travel a lot for this project. Um, and then the pandemic, when that when lockdown happened, what the problem was, you know, we had to return, at least I did here, return my library books. So I ended up buying a lot of books online, um, you know, just when I was doing revisions, just to make sure, you know, my quotes were right and that kind of thing. Um, so I have a very big stack just to the left here of all those books that I acquired during that time. Um, I'm trying to think of any of the surprising, one of the, the sort of fun things that happened was this movie on HBO, this documentary called The Cold Blue, which was about Memphis Bell, the first film that Weiler had made while in the service, um, well, in the military. And that was released and his oldest daughter, Catherine Weiler, who's a producer, um, was a producer on that. And she toured with it. And so she was in Houston and we had just been kind of connected a couple months before that um, through Facebook of all things. And then I was able to go to Houston and meet her briefly, um, which was nice. Um, and I've stayed in touch mainly with her and with um, her younger sister, Melanie, who seems to be the keeper of the family kind of private archives. Um, they've been very generous. Yeah, I've interviewed a number of authors who wrote a book about an older time period, but have been able to get in touch with kids and even grandkids. Um, and it's great to, to know that those folks are still there keeping up the flame for their, <laughs> keeping the flame lit for their, for their famous relatives who need, you know, it's important that uh, they're not forgotten. Yeah, it's it's an interesting issue, though, I think, as a researcher, like, you know, how will, um, for instance, Greg Toland, you know, died early, the cinematographer on Best Years, um, long collaboration with Weiler and with Goldwyn. His daughter is still alive, but she was born after this movie came out. So and I was kind of like, well, should I reach out to her? I ultimately decided not to. Um, but I am, you know, I was disappointed that there's not a toll into archive. I find that, I mean, it makes sense in some level because I mean, he did do a lot for Goldwyn and Goldwyn, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Goldwyn archive, you know, so that makes sense that maybe the stuff that's available is not enough to make an archive? I don't know. But, um, you know, things like that, you, you, it's always kind of a surprise, like who doesn't have an archive, you know, who should? Well, as I say, we've spent an hour talking and what's interesting is, and I often say this, but it's still the case, we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, that's a, yeah. that, that's a phrase that gets used a lot, but there is just so much in this book that I, we didn't really talk about the, really what Greg Tolan did in the cinematography and the and the fact that he and Weiler were purposely working to 
give the film realism that uh, visual realism Mm-hmm. And and some of the the camera work is just because it's the kind of thing you don't automatically notice all the time. But on rewatching, like I say, there's so many things that I think the more times you watch this film, and I the one of the scenes that I still remember is after um, Wilma learns about um, Homer's nighttime rituals mm. when she le- after they have this long conversation at the end, and he says, "But I can't." one thing I can't open the door and then she walks out and leaves the door open just a, yeah. just a jar it's the kind of thing where if you don't really spot it and yet this film is filmed with filled with those kind of moments it's true it's true it's and and I like how it handles them that it's not over the top it doesn't shove it in your face it's quiet about that um, and I, to me that's where the power lies so I assume you're Obviously, you still have plenty of, of other writing to, that you're doing, and I assume there's other books in your mind. I don't know where you are with anything, and a lot of times authors will say, well, I don't really want to talk about it yet because it's not ready to be talked about, but I assume that you will be continuing um, your film history and film background work that you've already been doing. Yeah, um, I do have an, I have a couple of books in mind. One's a biography that's more contemporary. They're both film related. The other one I've just started talking about as I've been promoting this book. At first I was like, oh, I don't know, this may be a crazy idea. And then I was like, well, might as well just throw it out there. Um, I'm looking at doing a similar kind of book about the women, the 1939 uh, MGM, George Cooper. Um, I see a lot there uh, that in terms of, you know, Hollywood's gender inequity right now, um, queer politics, Hollywood's greatest year. I just, I see a lot that can be um, written about in terms of that film and uh, perhaps how it's sometimes been dismissed, I will say, by male biographers or male critics. Um, I'm reading a lot right now around that film. Um, Also on the National Film Registry, like Best Years. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm thinking about. I went to a screening recently, um, and I've talked about this before, but there's a line in it where Paulette Goddard, um, playing Miriam, says, women are compromised from the day they are born. And I saw this film um, with an audience the day after Roe versus Wade was retur- uh, reversed. And the, this is, as you probably know, this is like an uproarious film right it's fast it's like there's just a lot of oh my gosh did they just say that and the audience just went silent and that was just pretty compelling well i this is where the best years of our lives and some of these other quote-unquote classic films deserve the uh praise they get even now because so many the the best ones tend to be the ones that still can stick with us and still have their their importance even today um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's why a book like this, and like I said at the beginning, the idea that this is a good excuse for anybody who hasn't seen the film or haven't seen it for a while to, to watch it again. And like we say, Turner Classic Movies shows it a lot. I think they had it Memorial Day, and I noticed it was on their uh, uh, on demand, but I saw it on Amazon Prime has it as a, uh, if you have Amazon Prime, it's on their Prime Video as a freebie. So that's where I watched it recently. So the good thing is, is it continues to be out there. Um, 
to, to view. And uh, hopefully people who want to read your book will uh, make sure that they view the film again because it, it's worth every minute. Every two hour, every bit of the two hour and 50 minutes or however long the film finally was. And it does not seem like two hours and 50 minutes. I will say that. I agree. I agree. Um, it just, you know, I've got, I don't know how many versions of it on my DVR all stopped at different places, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, my hope is that the book will, you know, will resonate for fans of the film, but also will bring new fans to the movie. Right. Well, thank you for your time. I really enjoyed talking to to Allison Maycor about her book, Making the Best Years of Our Lives from University of Texas Press and uh, continued success with the book and your work. I'm definitely going to reach out and take a look for the Scarin book because I really want to read more. He, he just, it sounds interesting right from the start and, and it's a subject that I would definitely, I would find interesting. So looking forward to reading that and hopefully someday in the future, if your next book out, whenever that is, we'll possibly be able to talk again. I've had people who have been on multiple times now, so nothing wrong with that. Um, I would love that. And thank you for, you know, being interested in this book and having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. My great thanks to Allison for her time. I hope her information gave you valuable background details about a film definitely worth viewing. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back with soon Outro take two. My great thanks to Allison Maycor for her time. I hope her information gave you valuable background details about a film definitely worth viewing. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.